Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. In each episode, we talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our discussions will range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you're ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution towards solutions. I'm your host, Dave Carlscott. I'm a director of energy and sustainability at Brailsford and Dunleavy. Students and faculty want this because boards are always looking for, we're gonna spend money, we're gonna spend it on mission. We're gonna spend, right? We're gonna spend it on classrooms. We're gonna spend it on students. We're not gonna spend it on pipes and wires. There is no do nothing option here. We have to spend this money either way. Why not invest in the future? Don't get hung up early on if you hear no. No just means that sounds hard. You need to tell me more. In this episode, you'll hear a panel discussion recorded at the 2023 Higher Education Climate Leadership Summit, co-hosted by Second Nature and the Intentional Endowments Network, or IEN. The title of the session was Decarbonizing Heating and Cooling, Thermal Transition and Action. You'll hear a full introduction from my fellow panelists and more background on our topic in a moment. But for now, a special thanks to Second Nature and IEN for running such a great summit this year and for giving their permission to share this engaging conversation on this podcast. If you like what you hear, you can still register for their 2024 summit, which will be in Long Beach, California, February 11th through the 13th. I hope you enjoy this session recorded in February 2023 on the University of Miami campus. We've got roughly 90 minutes for this session. We've got some time, but I know it's going to go fast. So again, like the previous sessions, please, if you have questions along the way, put them in the chat if you can. If we have time at the end, we can even raise hands and things. I think there are some people watching online as well. So same, same rules apply there. But I'll just start by welcoming you all to the session, Decarbonizing Heating and Cooling, Thermal Transition in Action. So we're getting to the action part, not the planning part. I'll start introducing myself. My name is Dave Carlscott. I'm the Director of Energy and Sustainability at Brailsford and Dunleavy. Just a few words about our firm. We're an owner's advisor firm that works with higher ed clients all over the country. We work on lots of different asset types and I lead our energy and sustainability practice. It's a pleasure for me to be able to work at a company who has in our purpose statement, inspiring, empowering and advancing communities. So kind of tying back to some of the, the themes from earlier this morning. I am super excited today because I get to lead a discussion with great friends of mine, people I've worked with, many of them for, for a decade in some cases or more. But a little background on me, I am currently a consultant. Before that, I was a software developer. But if you know me really well, uh, you'll know that I actually started as a jazz musician. And why do I bring that up? <laughs> I bring it up for two main reasons. Number one, I know there's a lot of people in this space that are like trying to figure out what's a sustainability thing and can I really do it? And can I really be like these cool people on the stage here? And the answer is yes. And, and the reason is because this kind of work requires a different kind of thinking. It requires collaboration, iteration. And we're going to do a little jam session here in a very conference buttoned up sort of way, I suppose. But maybe if the audience can help out a little bit at, from time to time, like they say something really cool, you know, give them a good shout out. So. I don't know, maybe should we do a practice, like act like you're going to say something inspiring, but don't actually do it, just to get on a practice. 
right, so there you go. So, so we want that in here. We want to get them going. We want to get the, you know, otherwise you guys are going to fall asleep and like just be thinking about what drink you're going to get afterwards. So let's keep the energy up. What are we going to talk about today? First of all, this is the sustainability conference, not the International District Energy Association. So they can mention they have boilers, but we're going to limit the, the stats and, you know, how many chillers they have and stuff like that. This is not really about the technology. This is going to be more about how do you get your institution to make these transformational changes? So that's that's our broad theme. My rules here are gonna be pretty simple. I'm gonna run down the line here, let, let everybody give themselves an introduction, talk a little bit about the project or work that they're doing that got them on stage. And you, you should know what that is by now, I hope. So we did our prep work. And then I want each of you to leave us a riff. So some thought, and then we'll come back around in, in subsequent questions. So, so think about your riff. I know Daniel's got, couple that he can draw from. We'll see which one he picks. All right. So with that, Dan, I pass the green button. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Dana Weisbord. I am currently the Chief Sustainability Officer at Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts. I've been there for three months. Uh, four months ago, I was the uh, Associate Vice President for Planning and Sustainability at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. So the project I want to talk a little bit about today is the, the Smith College decarbonization project, campus geothermal project. And my colleague Beth Hooker is here, who's carrying this work forward. Some of you might have heard Beth talk earlier today. So very quickly, the image that you're looking at right now, this is April of 2022. And this is the Board of Trustees and the President and her cabinet of Smith College giving themselves a standing ovation when they approved the largest capital project in the college's history, $210 million to take a 90% reduction of the campus carbon footprint, largely through electrification by a ground source heat pump. I am not at this moment going to talk about the technical details of that plan, although I would be happy to, the technical details and the financial details are, right, there are a lot. It's highly detailed. And actually, this is my point. So much of what we do, so much when we come to an event like this, it's about knowledge transfer. We're trying to learn from each other how to do this work. And um, there, is a, there is a book that you can currently get for $0 on Amazon called Common Knowledge. It's by Nancy Dixon, who was a faculty member at the Harvard Business School. And she talked a lot about knowledge transfer and she puts it into some categories. And one of them is the close transfer of knowledge and the far transfer of knowledge. Close transfer of knowledge is, it's like a tick list. I, it's like a assembly instructions, right? I can hand Dave the, the list of instructions and he can know how to do that thing. Getting your board of trustees to approve a $200 million project is not that kind of knowledge transfer, <laughs> right? It is complex knowledge transfer. It's about, and I can't explain to Camille how to do that for her campus until I understand her. What I know about that is not effective for her until I understand her political context, her cultural context, her business context of her institution, all of the complexity around that. And it, the same was true when we presented this project to our board of trustees. There's so much information that goes into this level of organizational change that you have to find ways for people to understand 
the entire context of what you're doing. And so to do that, the way we've been going about that is really thinking about what is the mission of the institution and how do we draw on the mission of the institution? So higher ed, two primary missions, education and the, the building and dissemination of knowledge. And so we have faculty and students who, who do the things that lead to those two outcomes. And so here's an example. These are Smith College. This is Alex Barron, who is faculty member in our environmental science and policy program, and his student Lucy Metz. And uh, on the right side is Denise McCann, who is faculty member in the Smith College engineering program, and her student Sally Robson. At Smith, the engineering students graduate in their hard hats. That's, that's what that's about. And Alex and Denise, as faculty, spent years on our doing our strategic planning work. Beth talked a little bit about that work this morning. And, and in the transfer of that knowledge and of the approach that we were taking to decarbonize our campus, it was Lucy's research and Sally's research. Sally's research was on the role of battery power in our future electrified campus. They're the ones who presented to our trustees on the policy context and on the technical context. So when at the end of the day, when the board approved this project, it was not about, they, they never asked the question, do our students and faculty want this? Because boards are always looking for, if we're gonna spend money, we're gonna spend it on mission. We're gonna spend, right? We're gonna spend it on classrooms. We're gonna spend it on students. We're not gonna spend it on pipes and wires. But when the whole thing comes together, that question never came up. Because it was obvious that the, that the faculty work and the student work was aligned to what we were doing operationally. So that's how we did it. it will, that context will not apply to everyone. Now I'm at Tufts University. I'm dealing with very rural, a very suburban, and a very urban campus, all of which uh, have started the work of this kind of decarbonization planning and all of which need to further that work. And now I'm trying at a larger scale to say, can we scale up that kind of engagement around mission activities with students and faculty to make a big change. All right, we're passing into Camille. And Camille, I've had the honor of working with you in the University of California on uh, carbon neutrality for about six years now. And it's been interesting to see this transition from carbon neutrality to fossil-free planning. So I would be interested to hear that, but I'll just pass the baton to you and take right. it away. Um, I did script because I, if I ad lib too much, it go, my solo goes on too long. I will actually, I'm going to throttle myself deliberately here. Um, so thank you for inviting me to be part of this panel. I'm really honored and happy to be here. I'm Camille Kirk. I'm the Director of Sustainability and the Campus Sustainability Planner for the University of California or UC uh, Davis. And I realize there are multiple UCs, so I'm the California C. Today, I'm going to share with you some of the things that we've been doing at UC Davis, and in particular, I'll start out with explaining current work that we're doing on a fossil fuel-free pathway plan. I'll tell you about that. And then um, a little later in our panel, I'll talk to you about some very specific major direct decarbonization work that we're doing that we call the big shift. So first, a bit of background, and this slide is, is intended to help you with some background about University of California Davis. We're located in Northern California, near the state capital of Sacramento. So we're, we're quite north, uh, not too far away from San Francisco. It opened in 1908. We're the most academically comprehensive public university on the West Coast of the United States, which means we have a veterinary school. 
We are a complex public land-grant research university. We serve nearly 39,000 students. We have 25,000 employees for the size of a mid-sized U.S. city on any given day on our campuses. We are a powerful economic engine for our state and our region. We generate over $8.1 billion of economic activity annually. We are large. We're over 2,000 hectares of land and over 1.9 million built square meters. Um, we have multiple locations, including our main campus in Davis, our namesake, um, which has a big academic uh, agricultural research program. Uh, we also have a regional level one trauma hospital in Sacramento and a medical and nursing school. So we've got all those clinical facilities as well. And then a bunch of research facilities sprinkled hither and yon across the state and actually a little few things out of state too. Our square meters or square feet, much of it are very high energy and high water use uh, lab and medical space. So we've got a lot going on that creates part of the problem. We use a variety of fossil fuels in our operations and infrastructure, just like all of you, I'm sure. The vast majority of our fossil fuel use, 95% on any given year of our annual fossil fuel use is in the form of fossil natural gas in our district heating systems and our standalone buildings. So we have uh, by far the majority use is our two uh, central plants at the Davis campus. And yes, we're that big that we have two different central plants um, with steam boilers. And then we have a cogeneration plant at our Sacramento Medical Campus. So with that context of what our problem statement is, I'll tell you about our fossil fuel-free planning effort. The 2023 was going to be 22, but we needed two extra months. Uh, UC Davis fossil fuel-free pathway plan was prompted as a comprehensive and formalized plan by a November 2021 petition on the part of students, faculty, and staff for UC Davis to wean our operations off of fossil fuel use. The plan builds on over a decade of studies that were prompted by our 2010 Climate Action Plan. And these studies were conducted by and for UC Davis on decarbonization of our district energy systems, those two central plants in the cogen plant, and also renewable energy generation both on and off-site. UC Davis has implemented action from this planning work, and we've invested and taken action for over a decade to reduce our fossil energy use and generate renewable energy. We have reduced our total operational greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels, despite growing to, I'm pretty sure, nearly triple our 1990 population and built space. This fossil-free, fuel-free pathway plan is not a but statement, it is an and statement. We have done all this work and there is more work to do to reduce our operational, financial, and reputational risk, to promote climate and environmental justice, align with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which is a big issue at UC Davis right now in the 2030 agenda, and to responsibly renew our capital infrastructure with an eye to fighting climate change. The goal of the plan is to eliminate 95% of our 2019 fossil fuel use in our business operations per a definition of fossil fuel free created by our Campus Advisory Committee on Sustainability. This plan investigates and documents needed building, infrastructure, management, procedural, and financial changes to shift from direct operational use of fossil fuels to direct operational use of biofuels and renewable electricity. This does include consideration of strategies for additional renewable energy procurement beyond what we've already got. 
The plan also proposes suggestions, not solutions. We're very careful about this word suggestions, policy ideas and processes for managing indirect use of fossil fuels associated with our commuting and our air travel emissions. The draft plan just issued demonstrates how UC Davis can eliminate 95% of our 19, 2019 fossil fuel use in our operations by 2040 through a paced set of actions that will renew our infrastructure, about $1.2 billion all in, in current dollars um, across all of our facilities, that will renew our infrastructure and allow us to demonstrate leadership that is replicable by other institutions and jurisdictions as part of what we see as our mission to share this kind of knowledge with the world. So we understand this to be the first comprehensive decarbonization plan of any of the University of California locations, and one of the earliest in higher education in the United States to be this comprehensive. Accordingly, we do acknowledge that this plan is experimental, and we intend for it to be seen as a phased planning approach. We will continue to innovate and refine this plan as we decarbonize C. Davis. We know we are not getting it all right in this first go. So Dave asked that each of us end with a, a, a riff, a key message, <laughs> and mine is this, and it's one that I've said for a long time. Sustained and committed engagement at all levels is the biggest challenge for climate action. We know the technological solutions to our problems, but those solutions will not be adopted or persist if we do not have engaged people at all levels actively and inclusively working in consensus to make enduring change. And you said that to a beat though. That's that's, that's great. Thank you. Elizabeth, uh, when I was at a conference pre-COVID, not the one in Atlanta, but one prior to that, it was in the Midwest, and I had the pleasure of sitting with Dano and Martha Larson was on the stage earlier here today, and your former uh, colleague, uh, Aurora uh, Winslade, and we kind of came out of the main session and had our own little mini session to basically talk about what we're talking about here today. It's been amazing to see, like since that time, how, meant, how much work has happened on a lot of your campuses. I know Swarthmore is no exception, so excited to hear an update from what's going on. Great. Hi, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Drake. I'm currently the Director of Sustainability at Swarthmore College um, in the Philadelphia suburbs. We are a small residential liberal arts college, about 1,600 undergrad students only, so about as small as you get um, in this room. And like Dave was saying, this is really a, a full circle moment, I think, to be back at this summit this year talking about our decarbonization efforts. Back at the 2020 summit in Atlanta, I actually gave a presentation about the planning phase of all of this work. And kind of at that point, our next step was get board approval. And here we are three years later, and we actually just started drilling our geo exchange wells in January. Um, so it's really exciting to be back in this room with all of you in person and be able to share a bit about what we've learned about this process along the way. So when I talk about Swarthmore College's carbon-free future, like many institutions, we signed on to the ACU PCC back in 2012 without really a clear idea of how we would actually get to carbon neutrality. We set a 2035 commitment and said, you know, we have 23 years to figure it out. And here we are <laughs> 11 years later, and we have figured out a lot more of that. Like many schools, we have a very old central steam plant that is natural gas fired on Swarthmore's campus. Sections of that um, distribution system are more than 100 years old. 
So we were at a point in time where we were faced with the choice. You know, we had to make an investment in our campus energy system. And we could either choose to kind of double down on fossil fuel combustion as our source of energy, or we could turn towards this carbon-free future and make a, make a campus-wide energy transition. And that's what we've done. We are transitioning over to low temperature hot water coupled with geo exchange and renewable energy to heat and cool all of our buildings on campus. Right now, we are actually in the first phase of implementation. Um, these photos are just a couple of weeks old. What we're doing in this first phase is drilling 350 geo exchange wells on kind of a central lawn area on our campus. In that top photo, the buildings you see on the right are residence halls. So this is right smack in the middle of our campus. We're drilling 350 um, 800-foot deep wells. You see some of our staff there down in the right-hand corner out there in the well field. Very muddy weather in January. Not when we hope to start, but everything takes a lot longer than you think in the construction world these days. So what was supposed to be a June 2022 start ended up being a January 2023 start. Um, so we'll be drilling straight through the this spring semester in this academic year. But a very exciting moment for us to actually have this project off the ground. And we've been able to learn so much from our peers through this process. So our hope is that we can really share what we've learned from this implementation with anyone else who's looking to make a similar transition over to GeoExchange. And I think that leads into kind of my takeaway message about the wealth of knowledge and expertise that we have here in this room and how much we can gain just from our peers. You know, just thinking about this today, shout out to Martha Larson if she's in the room. Um, back in 2019, you know, a group of us went to Carleton College with our facilities staff to kind of prove to them that geoexchange can work in a cold climate. So the Carleton team was really instrumental in convincing our internal stakeholders that we could do a project like this. Another thing that was really critical for us was having an external advisory board in the implementation in the planning phase for this project. Dana was on our external advisory board. So there's just so many peers, you know, in this space that have helped us along the way. And we can learn so much and go so much further if we work together on these kinds of projects. Michael, I'm going to give you a, a, a shout out. I didn't warn you ahead of time. But, oh. um, Rob can corroborate this, but I will first of all give you guys credit for what now is called the Second Nature Pro Bono Program, because we saw you guys doing something similar in your work at Evergreen energy and, and and copied it and worked with second nature to, to do some of the early planning work to get some of these types of projects off the ground um, but excited to have um the, the folks on this side of the panel that represent uh the i guess i'm on this we, side. We, yeah. we're, we're like sandwiching uh from the from the private sector but this is it's important to have you guys here as well about how do we actually get these things done you guys make your business on these projects so i'm excited to hear from both you and rob about how you introduce yourself and what your riff will be Thanks. Uh, so Michael Ahern, Senior Vice President of System Development at Evergreen Energy. Fundamentally, we are an operator manager of utility systems, sustainable utility systems. We have 10 different utility businesses around the country that we operate and manage. And every single one of those uh, utilities has a decarbonization initiative, decarbonization commitment to them. And each one is at various stage of, of implementation. The other part of our business, uh, which is the, the group that I lead, is our system development group, and that's our engineering and development arm. So we will work with other campuses and communities, helping them develop or advance their utility programs, helping them achieve their goals, 
around decarbonization, around growth, around integration of new technologies. And it's for us, it's a it's a fantastic opportunity to take the, the discoveries that we have from our operations side of our business and bring that out and share that with with all of the other campuses and communities around the country that are looking to to accomplish some type of, of goal as well. And then on the flip side, we're able to take the discoveries from our system development and bring that back to our operations. So we're continually advancing those systems as well. And it's just a fantastic opportunity for information sharing back and forth. The project I talk a little bit more about today is, is the Oberlin College uh, decarbonization program as a sustainable infrastructure program that, that originally back in 2016, we led the, uh, the, the development of a decarbonization master plan for them. And from 2016 up until 2020, we were going through iterations of that plan and, and ultimately getting stakeholder engagement and stakeholder approval, board member or board of trustees approval to move forward with our recommended solution, which as everybody else is saying these days is geothermal. And I'll echo, Martha said this earlier, Dan also said it, Camille said, the, the, one of the most important aspects of getting this to implementation was making sure that we had stakeholder involvement at all aspects of the institution, admissions, the, the student body, the faculty, staff, the executive leadership, fac, fac operations, obviously the sustainability office, having everybody hand in hand, one common set of goals that we established very early on in, in the development of our master plan so that every time we were making a recommendation, we kept pointing back to the goals that that entire group had, had embraced. Uh, just like Martha had mentioned in an earlier session, always pointed to the why. Why are we doing this? At Oberlin, we, we began conversion of the campus. It was an old steam system that fed the campus in a rather small chilled water system that the college wanted to expand. So first phase of construction started in spring of 21. It's a four-phase program that will be completed at the end of 24. And starting here, likely this spring, we will be uh, starting to drill upwards of 875 geothermal wells, roughly 600 feet deep each, to be the primary energy source to serve the entire campus. Part of our program, and originally it started out as a decarbonization program, but it, it quickly grew because, because of the fact that there was other infrastructure needs that the campus needed to address. So we became the sustainable infrastructure. It was a once in a generation investment that the college needed to make to address the deferred maintenance issues inside of buildings. You're going into a building and, and ripping out all the steam and condensate piping, but you also start to discover makeup air units that maybe aren't operating the way they should be and pumps that maybe aren't operating the way they should be. And so it, it, it blossomed into a much more comprehensive program, but ultimately is going to give the campus a, a much more efficient, lower operating costs, a, a much better product, and a system that's going to operate the way they want it to long term. You can see some of the statistics that we've identified as part of this program when, when fully implemented, uh, clearly a significant amount of water savings, which is, which is fantastic. There's more and more of a nexus between energy and water occurring all the way across the country. Certainly in, in some areas, it's, it's more so than others. West Coast, definitely not necessarily in the Midwest so much, but it's in, it, that nexus is, is growing and, and more so on the East Coast again. Uh, the one item that I wanted to touch on as part of this slide, though, would be the fact that, and this will end up being my riff as well, but there are a number of different uh, financing and, and organizational structure options that are available for, for implementing these types of programs. It doesn't always have to be campus funded. And you'll note here up in the upper right corner, 
we actually helped the college issue the, the first tranche of money needed for the program, which covered our 2021 and 2022 work, the $80 million of climate certified green bonds. Those bonds, when we issued them, they, the college was able to obtain the lowest cost of debt they've ever obtained on any bonds because of that climate-based green certification. They, and in parallel to issuing these bonds, they issued just some other bonds for some other campus work. These bonds for this program were had five basis point lower on, on the debt, uh, which as you can imagine for $80 million is gonna bring some significant savings back to the college. And those bonds that we issued at that time were three times oversubscribed. So there is a market out there for that type of money, for these types of projects to decarbonize your campus. There is an attraction there uh, from the private markets. One size doesn't fit all for your organizational structure and your debt financing. You should look at different options. And the, the key though, is to make sure that your the money that comes in, comes in in a manner that still aligns with the mission of, of the institution. What you don't want is competing interest in that money, some outside entity that's got uh, different objectives than what will be the mission of the utility investment that you make. So there's lots of different structures that can get set up, nonprofit structures, non-stock corporation structures where you can leverage outside debt financing to implement your program while still keeping that utility system aligned with the overall mission of your campus. All right, Rob, last but not least, by any means, uh, I've been warned by your family never to ask you to sing or to play <laughs> music, but I know that you can sing the financial uh, business case making. Texas Health. So uh, this map is up here. This is uh, meant to represent uh, some of our experiences at Salsa Brian on helping with these energy transitions across the country. And this is not up here to celebrate us or how good we are, because, you know, Michael could put a similar map up there and Martha, Martha, you're going to have to come back up here. We've every one of us referenced you up here. So anyway, <laughs> you can put your map up here. For me, it represents the fact that, hey, there's a lot is happening in this space. There's a lot of people that are working on decarbonization, moving things forward, electrifying their thermal supplies and, and moving in this direction. But the other thing that I'll point up there is there's a lot of those that are master plans, the orange colored dots that unfortunately kind of stayed there. And that's what I'm hoping we can talk about today is how do we get past the orange dots and get to the green dots and actually implement these things. And there's just two things that I'll point out. So I, I started my work with colleges and universities about 15, 16 years ago. We worked on uh, Cornell University's Climate Action Plan. And uh, we were interviewing a variety of stakeholders on campus. And we had one uh, interview with, with the professor and uh, we sat down and started talking about the goals and ideas that you know, we thought would be great. And we said, well, what are your thoughts? What do you want to do? And he said, you want me to come up with ideas? I don't come up with ideas. I poke holes in ideas. So give me an idea and I'll critique it. And I was like, really, that's how these, these things work. So if, that, if that's what you have to deal with at college and universities, I'm sorry that that's the kind of uh, environment that you have to work in. But hopefully you can find collaborative opportunities. The other thing is, and again, I'll mention ref, uh, reference Martha again. We started working with Martha, what, 2010 uh, on the Climate Action Plan at Carleton College a long time ago. And 2022, off-steam, so 12 years. And there was lots of stuff that took place before that. And there's still lots of stuff that has to happen in the future. These things take time. And you just have to start. You have to start moving. Dan will mention this. It's not a technological problem. It's just uh, inertia, you know, getting, getting things moving. And that's uh, what I'm hoping we can focus on here today.
Do I need to hand this back to you? That's fine. You can okay. keep. Yeah. Yes. Oh well, I'm sorry. I did have one final point. Oh yeah. What's your risk? Because we have to avoid headlines like this. I don't know if you all saw this. It's from Reuters, uh, November of last year. U.S. colleges taught green, but they have a dirty secret. And it talked about all the fossil fuels that are still being combusted on site. You should go take a look at it. We could argue about some of their uh, conclusions, but uh, we want we want to avoid headlines like this. All right, give me one more click, and I think we do. I really have one. Oh, oh, that's fine. <laughs> um, all right. So my first question, I want to focus on the higher ed institutions in the house here. We were doing the the performance part where we did their riff. Now we're going to workshop this a bit, so you have to explain how you how you did your riff. So. The, Making the business case for these projects, what you said, two hundred million dollars, would one point two million or billion, or one point two billion, and we're in the hundreds of millions of dollars. There's a, there's a lot of money on the on this side of the table at the moment, at least in theory. How the heck did you do it? As the simple question. So tell us a little bit more about the mechanics of how you got that process approved. I know, Dana, you mentioned a few things in your intro, but can you expand on? Sure. on the story or you know, feel free. And this can be free floating between the three of you. Sure. I mean, I, I think I think the key thing. People look at Smith College and they say, yeah, you know, you're a wealthy institution. So we understand how you, you know, you have great bond rating, you, you know, you bonded for this. We understand how you paid for it. But the, the, the moment that the penny dropped for me was when Denise, who was in one of those slides, and I and a couple of her students, we identified in 2017 every geothermal project that existed in higher ed in the United States, everyone that we could find. We found about 100 of them. And then we started calling. And this is where that far transfer of knowledge comes into play. And what we discovered was we found places like uh, Missouri Science and Technology, which were institutions that had completely changed over their heating and cooling infrastructure to a low temperature, hot water, geothermal status. They didn't do it because they had a climate goal. They did it because they had a deferred maintenance problem and they were looking for a lower operational cost infrastructure system. And when I heard them talk about that, a public institution talking about that, I realized this was that, that we could do this, but we really needed to drill into that life cycle costing. So I, I mean, Rob and I, and poor Rob, I woke him up early in the morning. He lives west of me so many times. He must have redone our life cycle costing, you know, 12 times. And, you know, <laughs> but but it was really we looked at a 30 year we looked at a 30 year business as usual versus a a case and we continually updated and revised that as new information came along and we 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 put all of the first cost all of the operational costs into that we learned that from the, the other Miami University, the Miami, Ohio folks who, who really gave us a sense of what all was in that operational cost and how much they were really spending on their utilities post-construction. All of that learning from those other institutions fed our, our business case as well as the, the engineering work that came from, from Silas O'Brien. So we are really indebted to all the institutions that went before us um, but we really spent a lot of time on that on that life cycle costing, and it was very influential at the end of the day. Well, since this is um, a jazz session, I'm going to fully pick up where you're leaving off and add on to that. We did the same thing. So while you've got everybody up here, I think, is doing the same thing, shifting from steam to low temperature heating hot water, 
using some geothermal. Why? Because you've got shoulder seasons in winter and solar thermal is not so great in winter. <laughs> um, so we're doing the same thing at UC Davis. We've already started, we've completed the first big neighborhood. I think, can we roll back to my slide? I, one more, there we go. Okay. okay, so if you take a look at the map with the purple on it and the red check on Hutchinson Quad, this is our uh, core campus in Davis that we are that's served by the central plant with giant steam boilers, 50 years old. These things are actually they're 55 years old, you know, so they qualify as antiques and we don't want them. And so we're, we're in the process of moving over. We've done this big red Hutchison Quad neighborhood. We're now in the middle of our construction planning drawings for the two purple, the life sciences, which we now call the Sprocket District and the central plant where we're going to put in heat recovery chillers down in our thermal energy storage section in the, the lower blue, light blue square. So it's, this is a, this is 900 acres or yeah, 900 acres, just this core campus that's served by this central plant. That's big. That's bigger than most campuses, I'm going to guess. So you can imagine with this massive of an undertaking, one, it has to be phased. Two, um, it's really disruptive. <laughs> like really disruptive to campus. We're digging up a lot of stuff and we've got spaghetti utilities like everybody. We didn't have master planned utility corridors. We have literally spaghetti utility corridors and it's very expensive, but we're underway. So what did we do? How did we do this? What's our recipe? How did we do this as a public institution that while we have money, we don't, we're not private. So we don't, we don't feel that we're Stanford. Here are our key ingredients. First, we had a small cohort of very persistent staff that kept collaborating and working this forward. So persistence, persistence is really important. This kind of work is like a chess game. You're playing the long game, you're playing down the board, it's strategic. Don't get hung up early on if you hear no. No just means that sounds hard. You need to tell me more. Second thing, I mentioned it's going to be a half at 1.2 billion all in for this fossil free stuff, which, by the way, is including like retrofitting our fleet and our small equipment and a bunch of other things. This work, half a billion dollars on the Davis campus, another half a billion over at the Sacramento campus to move that cogen plant, similarly to hot water and electrified. What do you need to do with that? You need to make a really good business case. Everyone up here has already told you to make the business case. How do you do it? Dano already said you do a life cycle cost analysis. And you use a long enough period that reflects what you're really doing. Higher education is in it for the long run. Higher education is one of the oldest institutions on the planet. We are here for the long run. So you can take a long period in your life cycle cost analysis. For us, we used a 50 year, not 30, 50 year period in our life cycle cost analysis, because that's about the amount of time you can reasonably expect a steam system to last before you're going to have to renew it. And our business as usual base case was we just re-up on our steam system. That's what we held as our constant. And we looked at seven, you can see in this chart, looked at, I'm sorry, five different other things as different ways we could get there in our life cycle cost analysis. Steam lost. Steam lost because of life cycle cost analysis because we counted in operational and um, commodity costs in addition to capital renewal. And as Dave and Rob like to say the future isn't free. So that's why this life cycle cost analysis matters so much. You're going to spend money, even though your regents or trustees may not really want to believe that they have to spend money on infrastructure, they're going to. 
So show them why you want through a business case life cycle cost analysis, why they want to move to a different system. It's very, very powerful. This is what sold it. This life cycle cost analysis, not do the right thing is what sold it to our financial officers. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Great, and I'll cast a third vote uh, for life cycle cost analysis. <laughs> um, also a, a key um, piece of kind of getting our plan across the finish line towards implementation. We modeled our project out over both 30 years and 50 years, recognizing kind of the long-term implications of making these kinds of investments in campus energy infrastructure. Something else we also did with our life cycle cost analysis was incorporate a shadow price on carbon. We did our LCCA ask if we pay $100 per metric ton of CO2E that we emit. So when you look at the the real costs of emitting carbon that aren't you know typically captured in that kind of financial analysis, it really widened the gap between these two potential trajectories that we could take between our business as usual and this investment in our energy transition. Something else that was really key for us to emphasize in that LCCA is that there really was no business as usual for us. We had to invest tens of millions of dollars in our en energy infrastructure either way. And we could either you know, make that choice that really runs contrary to our mission of educating students for the common good, or we could choose to pursue this more forward-looking investment in renewable energy and geo exchange. So the life cycle cost analysis and that emphasis on there is no do nothing option here. We have to spend this money either way. Why not invest in the future? I think a couple of other things that were really key for us that were touched on earlier today already had to do with aligning kind of our carbon neutrality goal with other campus needs so that this wasn't just a sustainability project. You know, our sustainability team sat down with stakeholders from facilities and maintenance and capital planning and other groups on campus to really understand what the bigger picture needs were for our campus. And out of that came goals around reliability and resiliency, comfort in residence halls and academic buildings on campus, concerns about the risks associated with aging infrastructure, all of the deferred maintenance needs that we had on campus, and all of these things that we were able to kind of bundle together comprehensively into this plan so that by the time we went to the board, this wasn't just us asking for tens of millions of dollars for carbon neutrality. It was all of these things that would you know, make our institution better for everyone. And I think the third thing I'll just touch on was the advisory board that I mentioned already. We put together an external advisory board for our planning process that included a couple of members of our board of managers, as well as experts from other higher ed institutions and outside experts kind of in the energy space. And I think in particular, having those board members on that advisory group made it so that by the time we actually took the plan to the board, we had two really influential stakeholders who understood the plan kind of front to back and were able to authentically advocate that this was the best choice for the institution. And I think without that kind of support and just that external validation from peers and other experts, I don't think we would have been able to get a plan like this across the finish line with our board. So I think all of those things were really influential for us in that process. Great. So switching gears for our private sector friends here, you're in the business of producing these systems, um, you know, in some cases, but taking risks to fund these systems. You're kind of part of the business case making, but also have to believe the business case because you're basing your business on it. First question for both of you, and you can kind of riff off of each other to the extent you want, would be, what is a good 
campus deal look like from your perspective? And like when you when you go and are talking to one of these campuses, how do you know that they're going to actually be able to get there from a from a business case making perspective? So it, a lot of it is what's already been talked about uh, amongst all of us. It's it's having the long the long play, the the long term commitment, and certainly that's inherent with college and university campuses, right? They're they're going to be there 30, 50, 100 years from now. So they can look at that long range uh, profile and accept the fact that we do a 30 or a 40 or a 50 year life cycle cost analysis. One of the most challenging things in the private development world is, is quite often you have developers who won't look past, some won't look past three years, most won't look past seven years. And trying to convince folks that 30-year investments are good ideas when they know they're probably not going to own that infrastructure and that property seven years from now, it's just it's very difficult to get them there. Uh, the example I have here is is a system that we're, we're just uh, up in startup and commissioning right now for land that's owned by the San Francisco Port that the giant, the San Francisco Giants basketball or baseball team and Tishman Spire are redeveloping three and a half million square feet on this 28-acre site. The port came in and essentially required a mandate that this campus, this redevelopment will be a carbon free redevelopment. And it also will have water systems that don't utilize any potable water for non potable purposes and going back to that water uh, energy nexus. We, we laid out a program to finance this system use setting up a, a non stock for profit corporation that essentially operates in collaboration with the entire development. Again, 100% debt finance, but we were able to set up the, the mission of the utility to be what is most important to the local stakeholders. So having, to answer your question, having some those those champions of it that understand the long-term vision or mission for that campus, for that community, that's where we get excited because now we know somebody who's going to work with you past the problems because there's always going to be problems, but there's always a solution if there's a will, right? If there's a will, there's a way. Excellent. Rob? So what I'd add to that is uh, when we when we work with the institutions that often will come in and there will be an, an investment opportunity like this, like an energy system, and they'll want to bring it into the same decision processes that all other decisions are made by. So, you know, new academic program or a new student center or whatever. And these are, there, there's a certain set of criteria that we see the financial decision being made by. Basically, what's the first cost relative to how is this impacting our, our mission or, or what we're supposed to do? But energy systems are a different type of investment. They need to be looked at from a different lens. You know, Michael, who's coming from the capital markets side of things, basically, looks at things basically risk versus return. And when you look at an energy system, that's a great investment from a risk versus return perspective, but it's in the typical lens that a university administrator is going to look at things. It, it's hard to kind of weigh that out relative to everything else. So those institutions that are kind of willing to realize that maybe I've got to put on a different set of glasses here to look at this project versus typical things that I'm approving, that goes a long way to kind of make this move a lot faster through the process. You can have that different lens. I will just one more Riffing. point. Yeah, yeah go, right. riff, riff, go. Just yeah. continue to reiterate, if, if the entire program or the initiative is being pushed out from the sustainability office, and you don't have engagement from fac ops and from campus leadership and from the faculty and from the student body, you're fighting an uphill battle. It, that's the first step should be getting that multifunctional stakeholder group together to be the, 
the true champion of whatever solution you ultimately get to. Excellent. All right. So in keeping with my jam session theme here, so, and, and Bridget, I'll put you on notice as with this as well. I want to move to questions. I know we probably have a decent amount of questions coming up before we do to give her a chance because she was listening and not uh, getting ready to answer questions. Um, I would like, I'm going to try something. We'll see if this works. And this is more for their entertainment than for your comfort. So just so you know. <laughs> Great. Goody. I want just one liners you heard from somebody else that, that hit home for you in any order. Like what, what are some of the themes that you've heard from some of your colleagues that new thinking that you just gained in this? And I'm stalling for Bridget here. So, Well, I'd, I'd say Elizabeth and Camille, well, everybody's been saying it. You're going to make this investment. We're going to invest in this infrastructure anyway. Yeah. And it, whether our goal is to, to achieve it by 2040, 2045, 2050, 2030, the reality is we have to replace pipes at some point. We have to replace boilers at some point. We have to replace chillers. Let's be thoughtful about that investment. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to make the investment today. It could be that you have a plan that's laid out over 10 to 15 years that says, when this fails, this is what we will do. Many times you can get leadership within the, the campus community to, to get to embrace that much more than just coming in and saying, write us a check today. And that's a hard thing for, in my experience, for administrators to accept right off the bat. But I, Dano, I think about our 12, 12 iterations <laughs> that we made on the lifecycle cost. And it seemed like every iteration, there was kind of a, a bigger, broader understanding of, oh yeah, this really does cost a lot of money to continue to operate our current systems in their yeah. current form. And, and, and people don't want to really accept it for starters, but then, you know, they kind of come to that realization. Yeah, so, right, because because there's this, if you're thinking about the budget of an institution, you look at the operational budget in one year increments. Yes. Right, you don't build yeah. it out for 30 years or 50 right. years. Yeah. Right, so I think it was maybe Michael or it was Elizabeth who said like, you know, the, the, the board doesn't, you know, they don't look at business, the business as usual case, right? right? They're gonna be spending the money anyway. Mm -hmm. And so when you do the side-by-side, -side, it makes a huge, it just makes a huge difference. And the other thing, and I just I meant to add this into that business case piece, if, while we're waiting for it. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, is when you start looking at ground source heat pumps in a environment like ours that is heating dominant, you need to add cooling to balance that system. So when we started looking at the system, we were, we were buying a system that was to heat our campus. But what we realized was we could add cooling to 20 buildings. Okay, adding cooling to 20 buildings is both helps us with competitiveness, it helps us with programmatic flexibility in the summertime and using buildings that we weren't using otherwise. So there were these other kind of like ancillary business cases that were sort of came trickling out of that process. And I wanted to Keep, keep those two. Keep going. I'm gonna. I'll, I'll give you the like the thing when the last round here. We had a very similar experience at Swarthmore, where we have a number of our residence halls that aren't cooled, which is a big source of drama internally with the student body, with parents, with everybody. Um, but pursuing a project like this enables us to expand cooling capacity on campus. So, like you said, there's all those co-benefits that you can really tease out from projects like this that make such a difference. I think in selling these projects. Something else that I think a couple of people have touched on too is just about finding your internal champions and allies within your institution so that these projects aren't coming from just one angle, the sustainability office or anyone else, like you said. I think for us, our 
facilities and capital planning staff have been incredible champions for moving these projects forward. We were in a fortunate position over the past like five years or so, we've rehired for two of the, the key leadership roles in our facilities and capital planning team. And we were able to incorporate carbon neutrality and sustainability language into the job responsibilities for those roles, which I think has really changed the game for us internally that our carbon neutrality work really isn't driven by the sustainability office at this point. It's driven by this mandate that's kind of been delivered to the facilities and capital planning staff as part of their roles within the institution. So there's no more kind of like convincing folks that we need to be investing in sustainability in our infrastructure. It's really just become part of the way we do things at Swarthmore, which I think has really changed what it's like for us to pursue projects like this. I'm going to echo that and, and agree. I think the notion of a champion, it's not a new thing, but it's really a key point finding your champions and they come from all levels and you need them from all levels. One of the things we did with our fossil free plan was rather than having two people or a consultant write it, we actually engaged operational stakeholders across the campus to be the chapter authors. So they're very invested because finally they get a chance to realize some of their other dreams like reducing some maintenance headaches, renewing some infrastructure or some building systems that they've been desperate to get done shifting to a different kind of energy provider all these things there those are pain points for them and they've been able to glom on and figure out ways to solve their pain points through another uh, vehicle and that i think again it's you've heard it from everybody up here when you can get more than one person's goals met through something you're going to have a lot more allies and they are going to help you get this thing across the finish line so that's i, I guess that would be my my big um, echo of everybody's yeah. here. That was the funny thing for us at Oberlin. Um, it's, it's like this at many campuses, each, each building is built to a different set of specifications and there's quite often not as much standardization as you'd like to see uh, across, across a college campus around types of pumps and types of equipment that's utilized. So early on when we were setting up basis of design, we, we walked through with the facility operations folks and and we created standards for the for the entire design of a complete campus renovation so now they they're actually getting trained on one standard that's getting deployed in all of the buildings so they're super excited about that as well and i think creating some of those little niche initiatives really really helps all right how are we doing bridget are we ready yeah we have a few questions here um First, I just want to say, Camille, I saw your graph of uh, the comparison against business um, as usual. And just want to say I was at Oberlin prior to joining Second Nature and uh, bless Michael for having probably 12 different uh, <laughs> business <laughs> as usual case scenarios. Uh, so the first question you already started touching on, um, each of you have mentioned this, but if you could speak more directly to it, there's a lot of folks who are really frustrated and thinking about how do we engage facilities regarding transitioning away from STEAM when they're still talking about adding to the STEAM loop. Uh, I know you started talking about it a little bit, but if you can uh, keep riffing on, on that, that would be great. I can start. Um, I guess a, a couple of things that come to mind for me. So I, I referenced earlier the trip that we took to Carleton College in the fall of 2019 um, with some of our facilities and maintenance folks. I think internally we had a lot of skeptics about geoexchange and whether or not we could actually heat buildings in the wintertime with low temperature hot water 
we had folks that just like didn't believe that that's something that could work. And it wasn't until we went to Carlton and saw, you know, their old stone chapel that was being heated with low temp hot water that they really actually believed that this was something we could do. And it really was like it flipped a switch, I think, for us internally. I think also addressing some of the ways that this transition could alleviate concerns of theirs around aging infrastructure that was at risk of failure. You know, operating a, a steam system with 110-year-old distribution is a really risky venture to be engaged in, and no one on the facilities and maintenance team wanted to be responsible for the failure of our central heating system in the middle of the winter. So really helping kind of reframe a project like this is something that could sort of make their lives easier in the long run, I think was really key for us. Also minor things like not being able to find younger staff that have expertise in how to operate and maintain steam systems anymore. Like even just minor things like that, um, that we were able to kind of build on to help make the case internally, I think was was helpful. It sounds like maybe you had some yeah, experiences. That, yes, that's actually, that was one of the big sells for our facilities folks, having a lot of problems finding steam fitters, um, re retaining steam fitters. Uh, another thing that we had was, again, the aging steam system. We had vault, we have vaults. Well, we have now abandoned those vaults in areas of the campus that were so old that they were facilities staff were, we'll just say unenthusiastic about going down into them. There was just a, the business case analysis really drove it home for our financial folks. Like, why would we keep spending money on something that's going in the opposite direction of where, and we do happen to be located in the state of California, so we do have some regulation that does help propel things along that not everyone's state has, but um, they were recognizing like the path is going here. And if we reinvest in steam, we are fighting, we are swimming upstream. Why or what, why do that to ourselves? So um, I think just helping people see why it would be swimming upstream can be helpful. Go ahead. Daniel. Yeah. I just, I, I hear this, right. I, this is a really common refrain of sustainability staff. I want to get facilities to do this and they want to do that, right? There's one of two things going. And I think Camille and Elizabeth have sort of suggested, well, let's assume they want to go forward with this. They just don't know how yet. Then the things that they suggested are going to work. Let me show you an institution that, that did the thing and it, and it works, right? But there are places and there are people who have an experience where they are, as a sustainability office, they are in conflict with facilities and nobody's told facilities that they have to change. And there's nothing a sustainability director is going to do to change that, right? Except drop an anvil on it, right? And that anvil, and this is, and Beth talked about this earlier, you've got to get leadership and board right? You've got to have strategic alignment on this topic. And if you don't have strategic alignment on this topic and the institution isn't telling the operational part of the, the organization to do this, it's not going to happen. And you should stop beating your head against that wall. You should just stop <laughs> and you should focus on the next strategic plan that the institution is doing. I know, I know I, we were saying we were going to get too much into the technical, but I do have maybe a technical question for uh, for Michael and Rob would be, it is possible to have uh, things that have a steam system on one end and not steam on the other end. Can you explain how that works in these transitions? Because this stuff doesn't, it's not like you just flip a switch overnight, right? Like this stuff transitions over time. Right. So at, at Oberlin, actually, the first year of our construction, we installed a steam to hot water converter station in the central plant because we the way in which we modify or transform the campus, it, we essentially went from 
clockwise from six o'clock to nine to 12 and then to three over these four years. But we had, you know, after the first year, we had Southern South Campus on the low temperature hot water system while the rest of the, the clock is still getting served by steam. And that that is an investment you have to make. We did that at the central plant. It made more sense because of how Oberlin's uh, geography is laid out. There's circumstances, there's a system in Duluth, that Duluth, Minnesota, that we transformed from steam to low temperature hot water six years ago. And in that instance, we put a steam converter station out on the loop at one of our customer buildings so that we could convert the, the, the furthest part of that, camp, of that system to low temperature hot water while still serving steam to the to the customers that are closer to our building. So the different different areas, it's, you know, again, it's relatively easy once you kind of lay out what your overall program, but there's definitely a, a way to do that. And I'm yeah. sure you have all kinds of examples of how you guys have. Yeah, we could go on and on and kill people. Well, my, my, my friend uh, Zana McGavi in uh, Massachusetts says uh, you don't, you know, it's a, if it's a tree, you don't start with the trunk, you start with the branches and then you work your way back to the yeah. trunk. And that sounds like you're describing. Yeah, and, I, and Dave, I, especially because pushing all that out requires so much energy. And maybe your facilities folks actually would be excited to get rid of some of those branches and start coming back and think about it. Excellent. I guess I want to add one more thing, which is persistence is the key here. So you're going to hear no a lot. You're going to hear it repeatedly. You're going to hear it while people are spending money in ways that frustrate the heck out of you. Persist. You're playing the long game. You're not playing the short game. And that's where, um, you know, finding your alliances, waiting certain individuals out, persisting, going and seeking expertise outside of the institution, because how could you possibly know anything? But those people over there, they are really smart and they've got it figured out and let's listen to them. Oh, they're doing the same thing you wanted. Okay, now we can talk because now I've heard it from someone else. Those kinds of strategies, however frustrating they might be in the immediacy, just play it out, just play the long game and don't take all no's as permanent no's. Often they're temporary no's until people under, understand how they can convert to a yes and how it makes sense for them to convert to a yes. Anything else on that one? Otherwise, we'll go to another question. Sure. So we have a couple on um, dependency on the electrical grid. So one is in transitioning to ground source heat, you become more dependent on the electrical grid. Did you make additional investment in backup generation for resilience? Yeah. Have you guys broken the grid yet? Hmm. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, it's it's a great it's a great question. I mean, I think there's there's two parts to this. Um, one is there's no question that we need to make huge investments in the grid. There is money in the IRA. There's money in the um, in the infrastructure bill that starts to do that. It goes to states. States have to spend it. We have to spend it in the right ways in the right places. And we're going to have to fly that plane while we're flying the other plane of like converting to electricity, right? So we had to do all those things at the same time. Smith College, we had a cogeneration facility and Tufts does as well. And we have to make decisions about these assets. The assets are not that old and they have life in them. And one of the things is we had to make a decision about when we were going to say that that asset is no longer, we're going to stop it. It may not be at the end of life, but as a, as a matter of policy, we're going to stop running that generation asset and we're going to convert it to a resiliency and backup power asset. And as a, and as a resiliency and backup power asset, that thing is great because I can run all my heating and cooling stuff off of it. So that's, a big part one. The other one, and this is the one that I find confounding, and uh, Rob or Michael might have better more insight into this, but like 
there are a lot of places that I've talked to, and I would reference the Miami, Ohio folks again, where the operating facilities, they, everybody says, yeah, you're replacing all that gas and you're going to replace it with all this electricity. And actually the amount of electricity they're, they're replacing it with is far less than what they modeled and what they expected because the systems have become more efficient. So yeah, it's more electricity, but it's not as much more electricity as you might think. And I mean, I hope that that's true for us and for others, but I'm curious if you've seen that in real life. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's it seems like magic. In fact, Dave had to put together a whole slide about it at UMass, if I remember correctly, to show how how can you take and supply the same amount of uh, energy to your buildings for like fifty percent of the purchased energy. It's it's really we'll spend another time on we'll spend more time on that later, right? Martha gets credit for that too because you yeah. <laughs> oh, really? he inspired okay. that one. Yes. See, she should be back up here. I know. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing. And and really, Dan, to make the conversion, if you think about it from a dollar and cents perspective, in most markets, you've got to have a new, if you're going to go all to electricity, you've got to have a new system that's three times as efficient as your current system to have a pencil just on a dollar of BTU that you're purchasing. And so that's why that efficiency is required because electricity is just more expensive per BTU. But uh, and so the magic needs to happen for it to make sense, uh, but uh, you know it's pretty cool technology. I think in, in several of the instances where we're helping campuses decarbonize, the other thing we're doing is um, electricity supplier, strategic investments in their infrastructure to be more reliable for the for the broader community. And we've been leveraging this these programs to actually help contribute to that investment, to so that not only are we receiving a better product of electricity, more reliable. But also, it, it's it's making us more of a partner with the local utility, and and, and the community sees it as as a benefit as well. One other comment I'll make, and then I'll pass it back to Bridget for our next question. Um, the other thing we're finding is there's a difference between doing a centralized system where you can run all that electrical infrastructure to the central plants, which we've already set up for it, and the idea of decarbonizing every building. There's a lot of people out there saying, "Well, let's just put heat pumps in every building," which is a strategy, and sometimes that is the right answer. But one of the challenges with that is. Now you've got electrical infrastructure upgrades everywhere you go. So it has different challenges and you got to weigh the differences between those and, and see which one makes the most sense for you and the way you want to maintain. Bridget, what do we got? Yeah, a couple of quick questions. So um, Elizabeth, can you talk about what the shadow price on carbon looks like in your uh, life cycle cost analysis? Sure. I wish I had some charts with me, um, but unfortunately I don't. So. We adopted a $100 per metric ton of CO2E shadow price on carbon back in 2016-ish and made the commitment at that time to use that shadow price in the life cycle cost analysis for all of our major capital projects on campus, as well as um, smaller energy conservation measures that we fund through our green revolving fund. Um, so basically what we do is we you know, set the study period for our LCCA, it could be 20, 30, 50 years, whatever we decide is appropriate for that project. And then we model out um, the lifetime greenhouse gas emissions for whatever project it is that we're considering based on kind of whatever scenarios we've decided on. Um, so in the case of our energy master plan, we had the scenario of you know, continue investing in our central steam plant and using natural gas as our primary energy source. That was kind of our BAU case. And as you can imagine, the the life cycle greenhouse gas emissions over 30 years for for that choice, I think the number was like 350,000 metric tons of CO2e over 30 years, 
versus the investment in our energy plan, that number you know went up a little bit for a few years while we implement the plan and then it's stable. So we save hundreds of thousands of tons of greenhouse gas emissions by investing in this. And using the shadow price is a really clear way to actually put a dollar value on that. Your units are something that people understand differently than metric tons of CO2e, which really doesn't mean much to members of our board of managers and different internal stakeholders. They're like, okay, is that is that a lot? Is that a little? Like, what does that mean for the world, for climate change, for us? They don't really know, but being able to put a dollar value on that helped us kind of put that metric on the same plane as things like maintenance costs and, and other costs that they're used to dealing with when thinking about big investments like this. So it was really helpful for us to kind of illustrate the, the long-term climate impact or savings of this project over the long-term for the college. So well, I'll just add- Oh, go ahead. All right, follow up and then can I pass it to you? So did you guys actually use that to help make the business case or were you able to make the business case without it? We did. So we actually did both. We showed it to the board one slide, like without the shadow price and one with the shadow price. Because of course there's some people that say, okay, but that's not like real money. Like we don't have to write a check for that. So like, why are we even talking about that? Like, okay, fair. It's not money that actually changes hands, but it is still a, a real cost kind of that our decisions have on society as a whole. So we really showed it both ways to, to include it and then not include it so that we kind of serve both purposes. Excellent. And then um, in our life cycle cost analysis for the big shift, the project I was telling you about moving from steam district steam to district heating hot water, we had three different costs of carbon. So we had a social cost of carbon. At that time, we were using $60. Since then, um, this past fall, UC, the University of California has adopted a $246 per metric ton social cost of carbon that's equity weighted. So that really does start to make a difference, even though you're right, it's not, nobody's opening up a checkbook and writing to the social cost of carbon fund um, that, but it helps, again, it helps reveal the risk inherent in choosing to go with fossil fuels versus choosing to move away. The second carbon cost that we had was the cost because we are in the state of California of um, having to play in cap and trade. We're a regulated entity under cap and trade, it went twice both our Davis campus, and then because it's geographically separate, our Sacramento campus. So we get to enjoy double the fun in cap and trade. And that has a, a specific um, financial value and cost to us. And then the third cost was because we have a carbon neutrality policy, we, we said, well, we'd have to buy offsets. If we re-up on steam and use fossil fuel, fossil natural gas, then we'd be buying carbon offsets to meet carbon neutrality. What is that? And so you have those three stacked bars. What's really interesting is that even with those, they were still much smaller than the operation, the commodity and the maintenance costs. So we could have we could have used or not used those and it wouldn't have made the business case, but it was an important tool for us to reveal the risk of continuing to use, if we had re-upped on STEAM, continuing to use STEAM. And now the University of California is adopting in this equity-weighted social cost of carbon into all of our capital projects. We have a, a modeling tool that we use for that and then also in our um, solutions modeling tool for greenhouse gas emissions and climate action. So really recommend a social cost of carbon as a talking point tool. Mm -hmm. So quick question for the rest of the, have you guys all used one and what are the ranges that you've seen? Like what's the, you know, like some people, what's too little, what's 248, it's one of the bigger ones I've heard being used. 
Uh, so we at Smith College, we had one that was set initially set at about $85 a ton, but it, it, it um, escalates above the rate of inflation. There is a paper on the Second Nature website about how we set our social cost of carbon written by Alex Barron, whose photo was up there, who was the director of policy at the EPA. So uh, it's re it's really good. It's it's a super useful tool for those who want to explore setting a cost of carbon. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have ranges you've seen. We're in the we're mostly using a hundred, but the thing we do with our lifecycle cost analyses are we we toggle that in and we create a range that we talk through with the board of trustees and early in the planning process to get them to really kind of embrace the fact that there's going to be a number in here and tell us what type of range you'd like us to model. And so then we can run iterations of the model out at different ranges to see how sensitive the, the overall model is to that. We know you care about this, just how much, and then we'll, we'll show it to you <laughs> right. later. That's brilliant. I love it. Yeah, and Dave, the only thing I'd add is get ready to educate. I don't know, Elizabeth, how much you had to educate, oh, yeah. but if you're going to put a number out there, you need to kind of explain why, where it came from. And, yeah. you know, so read read uh, Alex Barron's paper and uh, talk to Elizabeth and Camille about how to educate. <laughs> but that, that's, unfortunately, there's just a lot of questions that come out yeah. about that. And if you're going to use it, you got to educate on the subject. Very good. All right, Bridget. Yeah, so for those who don't have the app, I want to also give you a chance to um, ask a question. So um, I'm going to first turn it over to here because I saw a raised hand and then we'll uh, go around. Oh, yeah. Earlier on, you mentioned that um, running one of these systems uses only about 20% more electricity. So I just want to clarify 20% more than what? Oh, 20% more than than. Uh, uh, the fossil fuel-based system. So, so basically, what you what you get is uh, you end up with with efficiencies in your system that are going to decrease well decrease your uh, electricity consumption. But then you're taking all your fossil fuel. And you're now going to any any energy that was provided by that you're now providing from an electricity source. And so, twenty percent more than you were previously. Does that, mean, does that answer your question? I think no. I think your question probably embedded has. What if you're using cogen and you're making your own electricity? Oh. I think then the answer is it's the of the produced electricity that you were making in total. Twenty percent more than that. Do you want to restate it? I didn't answer it, did I? Sounds <laughs> good. <laughs> Another question was, I think specifically for Camille, what was the useful life? cycle of your ground source heat pumps they were curious about kind of using a 50-year life cycle cost analysis and the the lifespan of the heat pumps yeah and actually i think i misstated i think it was 60 years that we used um because we thought that that was the lifespan of steam or at any rate that's so those of you who work in public institutions you know perfectly well that we use chewing gum and bailing wire and we keep things going long past normal capital renewal cycles like who like when people talk about oh you're, you're going to do capital replacement you're like when it breaks like and we can't fix it again so for us we used a 60-year period and the geothermal the ground source heat pumps just kind of fell within that we are breaking it apart so we're viewing first what we do is we just stop using steam we get to hot water we use a little makeup with boilers and then ultimately phase two, if you will, what we can call phase one, the phases 1B, 1C, blah, blah, uh, 1A, 1B, um, to get through the implementation of putting in the, the piping for hot water, 
and putting in our heat recovery chillers because we're gonna, we have, I should have mentioned, we also use chilled water to cool our buildings and we have this beautiful ability to tie in, right? We're not at zero degrees Kelvin. We still have latent heat in that chilled water. We can harvest it out with heat recovery chillers. We can put it into our heating system. It's the beauty of physics. And um, that's that's part of it, but it's not enough because we don't cool the buildings enough in the winter and in part of the shoulder seasons. That's where we put in the ground source heat pumps. And um, that just, it got counted in 60 years, but it should last longer. I, I mean, I think too, the, the pipes, and maybe my, Michael can back me up on this, a lot of the, the pipe infrastructure can last 100 years potentially, right? Yeah. So the heat pumps themselves are gonna have, have to be renewed on a more regular cycle, but you can replace a heat pump like, you know, so I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years, so it depends on what it is, right? Yeah, but rebuild at 20 and maybe replace at 45. Rebuild at 20 and replace yeah. at 40, yeah. So or keep it going with bailing wire. Keep rebuilding. Or keep rebuilding it. Keep rebuilding. But those costs should be incorporated into the life cycle. Into the life into cycle, life cycle yeah. costs, yeah. yeah. So equipment replacement is is on a, a negotiated capital replacement schedule in the life cycle cost analysis, um, maybe not as aggressive as, as you know, a corporation might do, but certainly something reasonable. All right, so as we're pacing towards the end of our little performance here, I will have one more question and then I'm gonna have, we're gonna go reverse order kind of final thoughts. So, but one more question. Okay, so maybe you can make this a fairly quick one then. Um, Michael, the question was, how does sustainable finance work for Mission Rock? How does sustainable finance work for Mission Rock? Mm -hmm. Uh, we we did not uh, certify or we didn't get climate certified bonds for the Mission Rock system. We we just issued traditional debt to finance that system. So I, that was about as short as I can do. <laughs> Perfect. Um, another announcement is that uh, right after this we'll be we'll be heading to the reception. So um, that will start at five o'clock. Uh, this also ends at five o'clock, meaning we will all usher ourselves over um, out these doors to the um, art museum. Um, it's a beautiful. So uh, please look out for signs and or um, every the flock of other people headed in that way. Um, so I think with that, yeah, if you would. All like right. To well, in a real jam up. session, we would have the drinks before the performance, but that's all right. But Rob, take us home. Uh, just a couple thoughts, closing thoughts. We'll run down here. and we'll... So final, final thing from my perspective is, is we work at a lot of institutions. The operating dollars don't speak to the capital dollars very well. And so get, getting, I mean, that's why you need these champions, getting, getting people to be able to reconcile that so that the operating dollars can speak to the capital dollars and you can get projects like this done because you're saving operating, spending more on capital, and those two need to reconcile at some point. Well done. I, I, I'd like to just reiterate something that Martha, one last reference to you. <laughs> um, student engagement is such an important part of, of both the planning process as well as implementation. Bridget, when she was at Oberlin, was, was phenomenal at, at leading and, and driving our student engagement. But it's we were in classrooms speaking with classes. We integrated the geology department. And I know, Dano, you, you did that fantastically at, at Smith. Uh, we had uh, tabletop uh, sessions. We, we led community tours, student tours. We, uh, and, and we're continuously doing that just to, to continue to educate and inform both the community and the student body on what we're doing and why, and, and not just trying to push that information out, but as Martha said earlier, going into the, all different types of forums that, uh, that this will attract students to actually come and listen, and, and then be able to communicate with their peers about why there's a big hole in the middle of the campus. <laughs>
Indeed. I think I'll just close by talking a little bit about kind of what we've learned after approval. I think we've spent a lot of time today talking about what it takes to get kind of a plan approved and into implementation. But I think the, the learning really doesn't stop there. And we've learned so much internally about how to implement a project like this since our Broward approved it in February 2021. I'm losing track of my years at this point. Um, but I think like once we finally got approval for, for this project, after years and years and years of planning, we kind of had this like, oh shit moment of like, now we actually have to do it. And we've learned a lot in the past two years about actually having to do it about you know how do we manage a project like this like we don't have the capital planning resources internally to manage this kind of thing how do we communicate it how do we figure out the phasing plan who do we need to hire to do the different pieces of this project all of those things that we really had to i think learn internally after we actually got the approval to get us to the point where last month we actually you know put a shovel in the ground and started drilling geo exchange wells it was kind of a two-year process to actually even get there so i would just say for anyone that is sort of at that stage I think Swarthmore is really happy to be a resource and kind of share the lessons that we've learned through those kind of post-approval years of actually getting a project like this off the ground. So happy to be a resource. Thanks. We'll call you up. <laughs> We're learning our own sets of lessons and likewise, we'll be happy to share. I think the thought I'll leave everyone with today is um, I think we heard through some of the questions that there's frustration and some maybe sometimes you feel like you're you're beating your head against a wall. I want to encourage you all to remain reality-based optimists. It, you will have struggles, things will go wrong, construction schedules will slow down, things will be over budget, there will be arguments between your planning folks and your, your delivery folks around uh, who agreed to what and who's paying for what. All of these are temporary hurdles in the long game of fighting climate change and using the higher education mission to do so, remain reality-based optimists. Love it. You know, that, that was really good. That was good. <laughs> no. I, you know, there find find schools, find other institutions that are in your eco-region, right? There's no right, there's no secret that the climate in California is different than it is in Massachusetts. Find schools that have a like that have a climate that's similar to yours. There are VPs of operations and facilities. There are executive vice president of finance who believe in this, who've done this, and we should be able to transfer that knowledge uh, across our institutions. That's how we can use, you know, collaborative action to, to have an impact. Well, so I will close by just first of all saying thank you to our panelists for such uh, great insights and rolling with my crazy jazz analogy, but that sort of worked, whatever. That's right. Thank you to Bridget, who put this really was instrumental in putting this panel together. And, uh, you know, I know this was a panel she could have been on it. She'd still been at Oberlin, I suppose. So we were glad for her leadership here. Thank you to Second Nature and IEN for putting this, this program together. We are the people making the decisions to move this stuff forward. And this is where it's happening. So, you know, talk, I hope everybody gets a chance to talk to the panelists and I'm happy to answer questions myself, but um, just an honor to be here. Thank you for spending your time. And we got 50 seconds to go. Go have drinks. That's it for this episode. Our theme music, Under the Radar, comes courtesy of Dallas-based musician and arranger Geo Washington-Wright and his studio big band. You can find us on the web at campusenergypodcast.com. We are also on the site formerly known as Twitter, at Energy Podcast. 
you want to follow us on LinkedIn, search for Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend or share a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. As always, thanks for listening.